This is part two of our Muhammad Ali podcast, the Rhyme Solo podcast, and we're going to pick it back up with Sugar Ray Leonard, who gets into working with Angelo Dundee a little on his career, bringing a full circle with the health scares for all fighters, and legendary promoter Bob Arum on his years with Muhammad Ali. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. What's your best memory of of Dundee, who I always love in the Ali stories and how he seemed to be the one. I don't want to say he's the only one, Sugar Ray, but he felt like he always was thinking of Ali first. You know, it was just he didn't didn't want him fighting Liston. You know, he was like, he's not ready. He's not ready. It felt like Dundee in a very complicated business um, always seemed to have kind of a a simple mindedness to it that was beneficial to the fighter, if that's fair for me to say. I, I mean, that's kind of my 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 observation of it removed you know the what separated from my standpoint what separated um angelo dundee from most trainers is that he was so calm and collective and a lot a lot of stuff takes place in that corner i mean as far as you know you come back after a tough round your trainer has to be calm and collective and he can't be shouting and screaming. I mean, but then again, some fighters do need that. They want that. They need to get pushed up. Say, come on, come on, you're losing. Because Angelo said the perfect sound bite. You're blowing it, son. You're blowing it. He said just, but it was it was calm, right? It was calm. He said, Ray, you're blowing it, son. You're blowing it. And it was with the Tommy Hearns fight. The first Tommy Hearns fight, I should say. And um, I mean, he said the right thing. And I knew exactly what he meant. And I went out there the next round, and I did what I had to do. Is that your favorite corner story? Because I, I could I could follow up. Like, what else you got? Because I, I love this stuff, man. I'm glowing right now. I mean, that, that one, that moment sticks out in my mind. I mean, I can never forget that. I mean, you, you got to understand also, there's some, like, with fighters at certain levels, it's that intestinal fortitude that we all have. But we all can't activate it. And again, when Angelo Johnny said, You're blowing it, son, you're blowing it, that thing activated. And I knew, I knew what had to be done. He didn't have to talk anymore. Angelo didn't have to say anything anymore. I knew what he meant by those few words. 
Because I have you, I have to ask. I was 11 when you fought Hagler. And I want the younger listeners to understand that this is why I do love boxing so much is that when there's that event, the world stops, you know, especially when you look back historically for some of the heavyweight fights and what you were able to do in your weight class with Hearns, with Hagler, with Duran, like you, you made another weight class incredibly cool and just cycled through everyone. And that Hagler fight, like all of our parents, you know, all of our dads were like arguing and being like, why would Sugar Ray do this? Hagler's going to kill him. And then it was like, everybody had to figure out a place to go find to watch that fight. And then there were VHS tapes rolling around because some of us still hadn't seen it. And I couldn't wait to see it. And then afterwards, everybody arguing in the driveway, like, oh, Hagler won, you know, Sugar Ray, show, you know, he he just worked the crowd and the judges fell for it and all this shit. Um, I loved it, man. It's a big, that fight is a big part of my childhood. And I wish fighting still had those moments where it felt like everybody kind of stopped and paid attention. I'm not sure if it's ever going to be that again, but give me the buildup to that. How did you feel about yourself going into that? Because most people thought you were nuts. No, and I understood them. And I would say I would have, I would have felt the same way um, because Marvin is no longer with us. I got to give him all his due respect. But when I, I saw him fight, John Beast Mugabe. And I was like, I can beat Hagler because John Beast Mugabe is like, you know, outboxing. I mean, he's, and because John Beast is a slugger, but he was outboxing Hagler. I said, I can do better than that. And uh, so when I announced that, I, no, before I announced the fight, I talked to my father in law, Dick, and I said, Dick, I'm going to fight Marvin Hagler. He said, Son, can we talk? He said, He said, you passed your prime. You've only had, what, one fight in five years. Marvin Hagler's head is impervious to pain. I mean, here's a guy who hasn't lost a fight in 11 years, consecutive years. He said, that man's going to kill you. I mean, he, he <laughs> my father-in-law said that. And, uh, and so I kept it to myself. I just kept it to myself, but I was thinking about fighting Hagler. Thing. But once I did make the announcement and things did come together, I, when you get into the ring, Right, right. It's a different story, man. You know, you may look good in the gym, but when you get into that ring for the actual fight, it's a whole different dynamic. And I walk in the ring, and I'm like, I'm a nervous wreck. And I do a jab. I said, this stuff still works. I mean, really, it's it sounds comical, but it's not. Trust me, it is not. It took every everything out of me, and it, and also it took everything out of him. When the final belt, did you think you won? Were you like, no doubt? Or what was going through your head as soon as the fight went to the card? Good question, man. Because I, I actually, because I, I, I tend to choreograph the fight. I really, I see the fight, I make the fight happen. So I take care of the strong points. I shy away from the strong points and, and take, concentrate on your weak points. But I, I just felt that I did enough to be respectful. I wasn't thinking about that I win the fight because I won the fight by going the distance. Check it out. I wanted to fight by going the distance. And then when I saw uh, one of the uh, 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 officials saying, she said, you won the fight before they announced it. And when I heard they say, and new, heavy, I mean, middleweight champ, I mean, I, it's, there's no, words can't describe that feeling. And um, again, I mean, if, if giving back my title would bring Marvin Hagler back, home, I would do it. 
I definitely would do it. You know, I mean, that it means the world to me. But I mean, I, I love and respected marvelous Marvin Hack. No question about that. Would you say of all your opponents? I, mean, I don't know. You know, I'm always a little cautious of what words I want to use with fighters. You know, because it's like, hey, who, are you scared of this guy? Were you ever fearful? Some some of you guys are honest about it. Some of you guys are just not afraid of anybody. But was Hagler the one, or was it Hearns, or was it Duran? Oh God! I mean, they they all had their own significance. You know what I mean? They all had their own significance. Uh, Duran. I mean, first of all, Duran who hits like a brick, uh, but was better than the second fight, no mosh fight. Tommy Hearns. I mean, Tommy is Tommy is a beast. Tommy is a freak of nature, tall, lanky, and strong, and ambidextrous. I mean, really, Marvin is he, he Marvin is what he what he is. I mean, he he's one of the best, if not the best, middleweights. They all have their own significance, right? They all have their own significance. Whenever I look at the Hearns Hagler fight, and I, I watch, you know, the Hearns left hand. When you know there's this weapon out there that can just end it like that, you know, like all the strategy, like how hard is it to keep yourself tuned physically and mentally to keep avoiding this one thing that you know can end it immediately? You know, that's one of my main, uh, let's say, assets or ingredients. I have that 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 thing. I don't know what you call. I don't. There's no. I don't think there's one word that, that can define it, but. I can feel the punch come. I can now slip it. That's when I'm at my best. My I, I'm a hundred percent. The minute I I kind of start thinking too much or stopping and moving, because like they say, Ray, you lost the fight because you know you didn't fight like Tommy Hearns did against Hagler. Well, Tommy got knocked out. You know, <laughs> you can't fight Hagler that way. No one can. He's just too big. I mean, he just. You can't do that. <laughs> That's a great point. Hey, so after the Hagler fight in 87, now we're like, oh, Sugar Ray's, you know, what a way to go out. And, you know, there's nothing less permanent than a boxer's retirement. Um, you fought four more times from 88 to 91. And then, and this is kind of like bringing it full circle back to the Ali thing, you fought again in 1997, which I kind of was like, Matt, I can't believe you fought 10 years after the Hagler fight. Fighters like to fight, but yet you started the interview by saying, I, yeah, I didn't really want him to do this. What goes through your mind when you go six years off? Yeah, I'm in. Let's go back in. Why didn't you call me and say, well, you know what? You should not, you shouldn't go in there. <laughs> you should have called me, man. I thought you were, you know, you were at that stage of your career where the business side of it was what you were trying to do. So I kind of understood the motivations behind it. And again, I don't, I would never tell another guy like, "Don't go make money," you know. I mean, it's it naturally it, when you're at that stage, you know, it's 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 business, it's economics, and what have you, and it's the lure of having your hands raised again, beating the odds, all all those things come into play. I mean, ego. I mean, it, whatever you say is included in that moment because all of a sudden now I'm out of the ring and I'm not happy. I mean, just, I don't know. I'm, am I productive? Extremely. I'm productive. Yes. I'm, I'm all those wonderful things, but something was missing that I could not define. And it was, it was just boxing because I wanted to fight Hagler. It was like, I got to come back. And then after the Hagler fight, he said, right, that's it. I said, that's it. I said, one fight, I remember saying, one fight, one fight only with Hagler. But then I, I just, you know, it's just, 
I feel I, I always feel I can win. I always feel there, I always feel there is a way to beat that guy. How much did the training for that Camacho fight, your 40th fight, suck? I mean, um, with Hector, I mean, Hector's my man. I mean, was my man. He, uh, I, I love, we had great times together, you know, hanging out and everything. And, and I was sad by his loss. Um, but I, I knew when I got in the ring, and the, then uh, Camacho said, pop. I said, damn, that's, that's, that's it. Her. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah, a jam hurt me. Because I, that, you know, because what was happening by then, I, I you know, to uh, satisfy or cushion my, my, my mental blows and, and psychological blows, I would start drinking and, and it came into cocaine. It was back in the 80s when cocaine became uh, something to get involved with. And I was going downhill and no one, no one really told me but my really trustful friends. And they said, Ray, you know, you, you got to stop this, man. You're, gonna hurt, not, not, you want, you're not going to just hurt yourself. You're going to hurt your family, hurt your friends, hurt your fans. And you know what? I stopped. I just stopped. I cold turkey. I stopped doing cocaine. I couldn't stop the, the, the alcohol. I just stopped the cocaine. I just couldn't stop the alcohol. Do you think, I always wonder, do you think it's something where, you know, everybody has their own makeup, right? Everybody has their own things that, you know, that lead to the decisions they make. But when you're at the mountaintop in the way that, that you were, um, does, does the drug, does the, does, does the drug help fill that void? You know, is, is that what it is? Or is it just that you have access to it and you're around? Cause like your life is different than everybody else's life, you know? And I always wonder about that in sort of the void of your careers are over at such younger ages or they're supposed to be over at some younger ages that you're, you know, some people think it sounds like I'm being too sympathetic, but I would think that there's a void that you have that's impossible to fill that none of us ever are trying to fill. You know what, that, that's, what, that's, a, that's what it is. I mean, there was a void in my life. Um, there was a time where I didn't feel that I was loved just because of who I was. You know, I wasn't loved because I was great. And um, everyone seemed, was, seemed like it was coming at me, hey, you know, how about this deal? How about that deal? How about this? It was always superficial to me. Uh, I mean, no question about it. I had great friends. I, I mean, I've had, I have great friends. But I guess the people that I was around were always looking to do something or set something up or create something and everything. And I was just, I don't know, I was just sad. I just, I wasn't doing what I wanted to do, which was, you know, to compete, to box. I mean, most people said, said to me, it's, it's crazy, man. You know, if you have all that, if you have money, if you have fame, that's all you need. No, it gets to a point. I mean, you're still human. It gets to a point where it's that if you're not, if you don't feel good about yourself, and, I, and at that time, I wasn't feeling good about myself. I, I don't, I don't know what it was. You know, it's it, again, it's hard to define or articulate because I, I was so sad, and I was, I had this incredible wife, Juanita, and uh, and we talk now. We, you know, we're we're friends. Um, but all those things were taking place, and you know, and my life was my life was almost like going all the way down 
And if it wasn't for my my present wife, uh, Bernadette, I wouldn't be here. Because she she told me, let's say she told me the truth. She told me what she saw. She told me what she believed was going to happen eventually. And I am where I am because I had good people. And I have have good business people, too. I'm going to try to bring this full circle here. So if there is no connection, then, you know, I'll. I'll edit it out, but you know, you've become friends with Muhammad Ali and he's, he's watching you fight 10 years after Hagler. He's, he's watching some of the decisions that you're making. And at that point, you know, we're starting to learn medically about where he's heading. Was there ever a conversation? Did you guys ever talk about it? Cause I always imagine that fighters, you guys can talk to each other in a way that no one else can ever talk to you. Well, we don't talk, we don't convey, we don't let that out. It's, it's an amazing thing, and I, I wish I could put it in some order, but something is inside of us that, because again, there's nothing greater than having your hands raised, beating the odds. Uh, that, that, that moment in time and history is just amazing. Until we are okay with ourselves, until we like ourselves a lot better, uh, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a challenge. It's gonna be a challenge. And there, you know, the thing about there's no one there's no one statement. There's no one sentence that's gonna clarify what we're trying to grab. I want to end it there. That was awesome. I don't want to take up more of your time. I, I really appreciate you opening up and and talking. So um, thank you. Uh, you know that was that was terrific. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, you know, uh, I. For years, I, I kept it inside. I, I used to keep stuff inside of me. I wasn't happy or this or that. You know, it, it wasn't until I went to AA and I started talking about my life, being sexually abused here, you know, drinking this, being uh, being an alcoholic. I mean, all these things. I because I, I want, I'm Sugar Ray Leonard, so I'm I'm, I'm I'm perfect. Until I became humble, my life wasn't. My life is so much better today. Never perfect. Nothing's perfect. But it's so much better today. And I, I enjoy talking about this because when I talk to you, someone else is being helped. And I hope you know that, you know, one of the things that, that's cool about your life, even though you'd mentioned before, you know, struggling to to like yourself, to love yourself, um, that you should have moments where you appreciate how much you meant to so many people. You know, you should, you should allow yourself to feel good about that instead of rejecting it, which I, I think you're probably at that place now because it's, it can be a nice, cool feeling when you're like, you know what? I did mean a lot to a lot of people and I, and, and I was inspiring and you should let yourself know that, you know, when I hear that, that sentence, that, those words, it makes me even stronger. Well, Here thank you. you. Okay. Bye. Hey, thanks a lot, man. Honestly, that was terrific. Thank you, Sugar Ray. Thanks, babe. Take care. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call 
old school guy, probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I didn't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. He's a legend. He's been around it all. The great Bob Arum joins us uh, on the podcast to talk a little Muhammad Ali. How did you get started? I, I mean, I know the story and, and the law firm and all that, but but what can you tell us a little bit more in depth on how you get started and, and started a long-term business and, and friendship with Muhammad? Well, you know, I, I had never seen a, uh, uh, a, uh, a boxing match at the time I met uh, Muhammad. But I had uh, got a reputation when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office because under the guidance of uh, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, uh, I uh, seized all of the funds from the first Patterson-Liston fight. And it was unbelievable. The funds from the box office and uh, the funds from the gate. uh, over $5 million, and that was back in 1961. So $5 million was a lot more then than it is now. It's still a good sum, but it, it was an incredible sum. Then. Uh, and uh, uh, when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office in 65, I had had a reputation, among other things, uh, for handling that case and for another, a lot of other big cases I had uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office, tax cases. Uh, so when I joined the NISA firm, a big firm in New York, uh, a company that was doing television uh, uh, for boxing uh, retained us, really to retain me. And the first event they had was uh, a Terrell Shabalo WBA championship because the WBA had stripped 
Ali of his title because he had a rematch, something. And that fight, uh, Terrell Chavalo from Toronto was not doing well. And the people who ran the company asked me uh, if I had any suggestions. And this was 1965. And there had never been a black guy who had been a commentator on sports or uh, news. So I said, let's get a black guy to be one of the uh, part of the commentating team. They said, great idea, you get him. And I tried for Willie Mays without success. And uh, I was then introduced uh, a lawyer from Manhasset uh, who had put Jim Brown uh, into Syracuse, represented him, uh, said that Jim would be interested. He was still playing. Uh, it was his last year for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, and so I retained Jim for $500 to be part of the commentating team. And after, I remember he played, they played Minnesota uh, on Sunday. Uh, the fights then, uh, the closed circuit fights were on Monday and Tuesday because you could get the theaters on Monday. And uh, so I got to know Jim when he came to Toronto. We became, had a connection. Uh, he had me watch him uh, commentate from the television truck like I knew something. Uh, and he said to me afterwards, you shouldn't be the lawyer for these people. You should be a promoter. And I said, Jim, I, I'm not interested in boxing. I've never even seen an event live. Uh, and besides, there's only one guy that means anything, and that's Cassius Clay. And, and, you know, he's tied up. And Jim said, no, he's not tied up. I'll introduce you to Ali. Uh, uh, and uh, six weeks later, uh, Jim called me and set up a meeting uh, at the New York Hilton, uh, where I met uh, Ali and Herbert Muhammad, uh, who was his advisor. They flew me out to Chicago to meet the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and lo and behold, I became Ali's lawyer and promoter. And the first fight that we were going to do was Ali and Ernie Terrell in Chicago, and that's when Ali, in training, had got noticed that his draft classification was changed uh, from one Y because Ali then was really functionally illiterate uh, to one A. And that's when he said he wouldn't go in because he wouldn't fight to be at be at Cock. And the, the shit hit the fan. And Daly got the Illinois Boxing Commission to cancel the fight, throw us out of Chicago. We got thrown out of the country. We ended up in Toronto. Terrell pulled out because fighters then were paid on a percentage. And with all the turmoil going on, there wasn't going to be a lot of money. And Shabalo stepped in, and that was the first fight that I saw in person and promoted was Ali and Shabalo in March of 1966 uh, for the heavyweight championship of the world. I was only going to do one fight, really. One fight, maybe. Another fight. 
and no interest <laughs> in being a boxing promoter. But Look, I can imagine after that first one, you were like, I'm, I'm good with this. I don't want to do this again. Oh, no, um, no. I, what I said was that I thought that the treatment of Ali was so horrendous that I wasn't going to run for the hills, that I was going to stay with him. And so it ended up, it became my life work uh, in boxing. But it, that wasn't what I had envisioned when I became his lawyer and promoter uh, back in 65. By the way, you had told the story, Jim Brown wanted to fight him, right? Well, that was later. Because after the Shavalo fight, uh, it was going to be tough to schedule Ali back in the United States. So we uh, arranged for him to fight uh, Henry Cooper, defend his title against Cooper uh, in the old Arsenal grounds. And then another English promoter, Jack Solomon, uh, had Ali agree after he beat Cooper to fight London, Brian London, also in England. And Ali was, tr was staying at the Marble Arch Hotel uh, in London and was uh, would train, run in the morning at Hyde Park, uh, the big expanse uh, in London, where they had a running track and everything. And Jim of all things, was making his first movie, which was The Dirty Dozen, uh, in London. Uh, and he had a, a pretty good role in there. And that's when he said to me, uh, uh, Bob, he said, look, there's a way we can make a lot of money. Uh, why don't you talk to Ali and arrange for Ali to fight me for the heavyweight championship of the world? And so I naively went to Ali and I said, Ali, Jim, talk to me. He thinks we'd make a lot of money uh, and he wants to, uh, for me to arrange a fight with you. He said, okay, bring him to the park on Sunday because he wasn't shooting on Sunday. And I'll talk to him and we'll see. So Jim comes on Sunday and Ali says to him, Jim, do you think you can compete with me in the boxing ring? And Jim says, well, I don't know about competing necessarily with you, but I put up a good fight because I can beat up everybody in the NFL, you know, and I'm this and I'm that. And he said, okay, Jim. And he said, put up your, your mitts. And he said, now try to hit me. Try to hit me. Don't hesitate. Throw your best punches. And Jim, is, who's a great athlete, is throwing punches. He can't hit. And finally, Ali looks at him, you know, with the big eyes, and then with his open hand, slaps him like 20 times in the face. And Jim was convinced that it wasn't a match. You meeting Ali and, and, and being around this tumultuous point in his life where now you know, most of the country hates him. He was this heavyweight fighter that, you know, looks like he's got a chance to be one of the greatest. I know he was calling himself the greatest. He's with Elijah Muhammad. He's split from Malcolm X. He's, how did you get into this, 
this this group that I would think, you know, how does Elijah Muhammad sit down with a Bob Arum? How does how does Herbert Muhammad, John Ali, how do these guys sit down and, and trust you? Was it because Ali liked you? No. Well, why did I was Ali liked me? But I could get a, I got along with these people. I remember I was a Brooklyn guy, and I didn't care what color anybody was. Or, you know, I could get along with most people. And instinctively, I got along with them. Because, I mean, for example, when I met Elijah Muhammad, we started talking business, and he was very, very smart. And then, because he had people around him, and he felt he had to put on a show, uh, his eyes glazed over, and he went on for about 15 minutes about blue-eyed devils coming down in spaceships. But I realized uh, yeah, immediately that he was putting on an act, and he was a smart guy. So I waited for that to be over. And then we talk business again. And, and, you know, people are people. And I never had any problem uh, dealing uh, with uh, uh, Elijah Muhammad and his organization. And really, I must say, they had my back. In other words, nobody ever threatened me. Nobody dared threaten me. Uh, uh, I, I got along with them, but even... Though I got along with them, thanks to Jim, uh, I was introduced to uh, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Jesse Jackson. I knew all of them. Now, Malcolm, I didn't know because Malcolm had been murdered uh, before I met Ali. Right. Right. And, And I'll tell you a funny story. One of the people that came into Main Bout, which was the company we formed to promote Ali, which was who was assigned by Elijah Muhammad, was a guy named John Ali. And John apparently had been the secretary of the Nation of Islam. And he was the guy with a, he, he looked, you know, try to look tough and he'd stare at you, that kind of thing. But I got along nicely with him. But after we made the deal, on the, I came back to New York and the assistant district attorney in the, 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 the state prosecutor's office called me and he said, are you crazy? I said, why? He said, you know who's in your company is John Alley. I said, yeah, I know. I mean, he's okay guy. He says, okay guy. He is the guy that we believe arranged for the murder of Malcolm X. And that was his reward to come into the box business. Now, if it's true or not true, I don't know, but that's what I was told. So it's safe to assume, Bob, you never brought it up with John. Yo, I asked him. You no. asked him. Yeah. You did. What did you what happened? He he denied that he had any involvement. But of course I did. I mean I I mean, I lived with these guys. I mean, I, I we went to fights together. I became friendly with them, with Herbert Muhammad, with John Ali. So why wouldn't I tell them what the assistant district attorney had told? Me? All right, fair. The point is, yeah, that you cannot rely on the reputation that other people have given an organization or the people in the organization. 
the the the, the impression of the the then nation of Islam, which is not the same as Farrakhan's nation of Islam, I want to point out. I mean, there was a schism there and so forth, and which I can explain. But again, people were saying, uh, it's not safe, you can't deal with them, you can't be with them, and so forth. And if you're a discerning person and you don't listen to people who really know nothing, you can judge for yourself what kind of people you're dealing with. And most, not all, but most of the people from that organization that I dealt with were good, honorable people. Okay, so that actually leads in this perfectly because when I've, I've read anything about the contractual part of this stuff for fighters, I mean, we know historically it's it's been very one-sided. And then when you looked at like Herbert's management cut and then on top of everything else, like how do deals compare the financial deals for fighters then at Ali's peak? How do they compare then to what they are now? Well, what happened was uh, uh, when I first got into the business, uh, fighters were paid essentially on a percentage, 40% to the champion, 20% for the challenger, 40% for the promoter out of which he paid the expenses. So when I uh, made the deal with Ali and uh, Herbert Muhammad, uh, I changed it to 50% for the champion, 20% for the challenger, 30% for the promoter, and gave them 50% of the action, promoter's action. So I shifted a lot of it in other words, the promoter, the real promoter, was getting a much smaller percent. But again, there were no crazy, no guarantees. It was all on percentage. And then Ali uh, couldn't fight for three and a half years. And then when he came back uh, and he fought Bonavina in Madison Square Garden, it was still on a percent. Same deal. And then a guy from California came in, the late Jerry Parencio, and he said, this is ridiculous. He said, no more percentages. And he offered each fighter, Ali and Fraser, two and a half million dollars for the fight. And everybody thought he was crazy because at that time, on closed circuit, you charge $5 in bad areas and $10 in more affluent areas to watch the closed circuit. When Parencio came in, he said, this is such a big fight. He had one price, $25. So that changed all of the math. And the fact that everybody thought he was going to blow his brains out, putting up two and a half million to each fighter, he had about Two million or three million in expenses, and they took in over eighteen million dollars, and that started Jerry's career. He had a partner, Jack Ken Cook, who owned the Lakers and the Forum, and that was the biggest stake that Perencio had gotten up to now. And when he died a few years ago, after owning Univision, he died a multi-billionaire. 
This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate? Hate is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little something extra. An appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Food buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. So at this stage, we have the, the second part of Ali's return. He loses the decision to Frazier in the fight that you just mentioned. So leading up to, say, Foreman, because he obviously started fighting at such a prol- prolific rate. But, but leading up to Foreman, you still had a management part with Ali on that side of it, even if that wasn't necessarily your promotion, correct? No. Okay. No. Explain that to me then. No. Herbert was the, became the manager. I became the promoter. And after he lost to uh, Frazier, we realized that Ali hadn't been active for three and a half years. And most people still considered Ali the heavyweight champion of the world. So we decided we would do a fight for Ali every eight, six to eight weeks. One fight after another, all over the world. And Fraser, who had this old-time manager, Yank Durham, uh, he was the heavyweight champion, so he could fight some non-entities and fight infrequently for Zuski, not Summit, two guys, Stander and somebody else. That meant nothing. And so if you ask a person after that Ali Fraser fight two years later, if you ask that person who the heavyweight champion was, they would say Ali, even though Fraser was the champion. And Fraser was forced by the organization because he fought nobody to fight Foreman. And Foreman, as you know, knocked him out. And that ultimately led uh, to... Ali fighting Foreman and Zaire, where Ali recaptured the heavyweight title. But at that point, I had done all of Ali's fights, and then Herbert came to me, and he said this crazy Don King was offering uh, Ali $5.5 million to fight Foreman, and, which was a, another insane number. And I said, how, many, how much is it going to give you up front? He says, 500000 I said, take it, because it's the easiest 500000 you're going to make. And Herbert took it. Uh, and 
uh, uh, King lucked into a deal in Europe where he got this uh, crook who was the president of Zaire Mabutu uh, to uh, finance the fight. Uh, and one of the first things they did was to ban me from Zaire. So people said, hey, how can they ban you from going to Zaire? That's not right. And I said, well, you go and challenge it. I ain't going to go challenge <laughs> What a great, what a great. And by the way, every story that I've ever read about that experience, you made the right decision. Um, give me, give me something, Bob, about you and Muhammad that maybe people don't know, you know, on the friendship side of it, because clearly you guys remain friends throughout everything. And, and I, you know, obviously want to ask about the thrill of Manila as well, because I, I know that was, uh, um, that was the fight that you've talked about, but what are the stories that you share with your close friends and family about Muhammad when they ask you? One of the funniest stories was, this was years later when they were raising funds, uh, Ali and, uh, uh, and John White Brown, who had been the governor of uh, Kentucky, I had, I was living in uh, Las Vegas, uh, and Ali and Lonnie came to the house. We had a lot of people there. We had, you know, to raise money. And uh, so John White Brown spoke, and then I spoke about how great Ali was. And then I don't know what the hell got into me, but I, maybe I had too much to drink. So I told the story that I guess Ali had not been aware of based on the, what happened in the Ali Shabala thing. Now, I'll tell you that story, and I'll tell you how Ali reacted. Shabala was managed by... Uh, two brothers, Irving and A.B. Ungerman, who uh, main business was a turkey and chicken processing plant in Toronto. So they asked me the morning of the fight. I remember I had never seen a fight. They asked me the morning of the fight if I would have breakfast with them. And I said, sure. So they said to me when we sat down and ordered our bagels and locks, and, uh, they said to me, look, we're three Jewish guys. What are you doing with these Muslims? I said, what are you talking about? They said, well, tell us how George can beat Ali. Now, remember, I'd never seen a fight. So I was a wise guy. I said, the only way George can beat Ali is to hit him in the balls and keep hitting him in the balls until he can't walk, and maybe you can win the fight. I was facetious. But these guys thought I was telling them the truth. They told that to George. So now, watch that fight. Every round, boom, George hits him in the, in the, in the balls. Every round, finally, after 15 rounds, because they fought 15 rounds in those days, Ali has to be helped from the ring. He wins every round, but he has to be helped from the ring to get to the dressing room. So he's laying on, 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 the, on the bed in the dressing room, 
And a guy comes in who I'd never seen nothing who I'd never seen before, and he said, "This was a disgrace. This was the worst thing in the history of boxing." So I get up. I say, "Get the fuck out of here!" It was Howard Cosell. That was when I met Howard Cosell. Anyway, I tell that story at the fundraiser for Ali in my house, and Ali hadn't heard it before. <laughs> he made believe that he was so angry with me. <laughs> he got up and he tried to punch me, but he was kidding around. But again, we had a great time together, and we did. I mean, I can tell. So it really changed my life because what a great human being uh, Ali was. Uh, another time, that uh, I, I recall, I, I was in London when you know this Jim Brown thing happened when he was fighting Brian London. And Herbert comes to me and he says, this very, very wealthy Pakistani Muslim uh, invited us to his mansion uh, to have uh, Sunday dinner. And I said, yeah. And they said, and I want you to come with us. So it's a great honor. So Ali, Herbert, and myself, we have a driver. And we set off for this guy's house. And we're in a very low, you know, class uh, uh, area in London, you know, small homes and so forth. So I'm telling the driver, hey, you're taking us in the wrong direction, right? I'm looking for a place that has big mansions. And the driver says, look, I know where I am. I have to take a test. I know where the address is. This is where the address is. Pulls up to this house, small house. The guy gets the guy gets out of the comes out of the house to greet us. Takes us in. It was obviously he had Condali and Herbert, and he had a piano. I remember in the house and a table that didn't have enough seats for us to sit around. We had to take turns eating. And Ali is playing the piano, you know, doing magic tricks. And finally, after three hours, we leave. So I said to Ali, you're an idiot. Look what a fool this guy made out of you. Uh, you know, he had no money. And he got you to go to the house. He says, Bob, I gave him an experience that he will never forget. And it made my day. And that was something. That was something. He had been conned into going to this guy's house, but he had performed as if the guy was the wealthiest Muslim in London. And he truly, he, the guy probably, if he's still alive, still remembers that day. And maybe the girl that he was hoping, his daughter, hoping that Ali would fall in love with is probably still alive and she would remember yeah, that sounds that sounds like everything you know you, you ever read about him. Um, your is your favorite fight the third one with Frazier in Manila? That's one of the great fights of all time. Uh, the only fight that I think was better because it was most intense was uh, Hagler Hearns, but uh, certainly uh, Ali Frazier uh, in Manila was, I'll never forget that. I mean, was like, 
first Ali was winning, then Fraser came on. It looked like he was going to knock Ali out. Then Ali in the in the teen rounds, this was fifteen rounds, uh, rally shut both of Fraser's eyes. Fraser couldn't come out for the fifteenth round, but it was the most unbelievable fight that one could see. And remember, it was in Manila, in the before it was renovated, Araneta Coliseum, a dark, dingy building. And because of the difference in time, uh, the fight went on uh, early in the early morning. Uh, in Manila to coincide with uh, uh, with prime time in the United States. It went on about 10, 11 in the morning. And when we, after that fight, when we had seen the most unbelievable fight, we went out and the sun in Manila was so bright you couldn't see. It was almost like we were on a different planet. I mean, it was the most unbelievable experience that I've had. Uh, and I remember it vi vividly, how I had to shield my eyes because the sun was blinding me. And I was in such a state of, uh, uh, of shock and uh, uh, exhaustion after seeing these two guys battle for 14 rounds. How was the conversation or how did they go with, with you and Muhammad towards the end of the career when, you know, he, he's talking about retiring almost after every single fight of the last 10 plus. And we know he's not going to retire. We know what fighters do, but then, you know, the last handful of fights, what were those conversations like with you and Muhammad? Well, the, after the Ali Fraser fight, it looked to me like Ali should never fight again. But he went on, and uh, I remember about a year later, fought Ken Norton for the third time in Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium in New York. And that was a very, very close fight, but it, it was clear that Ali had lost almost everything. And although he got the decision, a lot of people thought that Norton won the fight. I thought Ali won the fight, but he was really finished at that time. So finished that Ferdy told him, Ferdy Pacheco told him to hang him up. Ali wouldn't listen. Ferdy then quit being his doctor. Uh, in 1977, uh, Ali asked me to promote an easy fight for him. Uh, and the easiest guy I could get was Leon Spinks, who had won an Olympic medal uh, at light heavyweight uh, in the previous Olympics in Montreal. And it was a joke that Ali and Spinks. And of course, as we know, in February of uh, 78, uh, uh, Spinks beat Ali. And when I went into the dressing room after the fight, uh, Ali said, look, I promise you, I want one more fight, win or lose. I want to fight Spinks again. I will retire. And so I made that fight, and that fight took place in New Orleans. 
and Ali won the fight, and uh, uh, he agreed to retire. And we did a WBA heavyweight tournament. Uh, and then a couple of years later, uh, Don King convinced him to come back uh, and fight Larry Holmes. I mean, that certainly didn't help Ali's health. But I would think that Ali's real career ended or should have ended with the Fraser fight in the Dillon. Hey, look, I know you got a lot going on today. Keep doing great stuff, and, and hopefully we'll get to check in with you again soon, all right? Thanks, Bob. Yeah, okay, good talking to you. I had a lot of fun. I want to thank everybody for their involvement in this and making sure we had some guests and check out the Ali book by Jonathan Eig if you want more. Coming up later this week, we'll have our first look at the college football season with a big college football preview. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything.